1865, Lewis Carroll wrote these words. So, she was considering in her own mind as well as she could, for the day made her feel very sleepy and stupid, 1865, whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies, when suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. There was nothing so remarkable in that, nor did Alice think it so very much out of the way to hear the rabbit say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be too late. But when the rabbit actually took a watch out of its waistcoat pocket, looked at it, and then hurried on, Alice started to her feet. For it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it. And burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it and was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, down went Alice after it. And then we know the story of Alice and her adventures in Wonderland, don't we? A story filled with all sorts of journeys and and adventures of joy and wonderment, of struggle and sorrow. But out of her boredom and her sleepiness, the curiosity of Alice caused her to awaken from her slumber and pursue a talking rabbit. And to pursue it down a hole under the hedge. And her adventures in this crazy land have a deep impact on the life of Alice and even us some a hundred and some odd years later. In literature, we call this writing technique cause and effect. A talking rabbit piqued her curiosity. This is the cause. The effect, she got up, Alice did, and pursued the rabbit down a hole and had all kinds of strange and odd adventures in Wonderland. This is the effect. The power behind this technique in literature is the fact that it is built upon the truth of the reality of our existence. Our lives are deeply impacted by this reality of cause and effect. Take a cookie without talking to mom or dad first and you most likely will get a stern talking to cause and effect. Commit a crime, you go to jail, cause and effect. These are easy and simple things that we know either intrinsically or maybe better or worse, experientially, right? Hopefully it's the cookie illustration that we... We understand cause and effect. Here in Mark 9, Jesus continues to educate his disciples on what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. But here in this remarkable, difficult passage to to fully understand, he also tells them of the opposite of the kingdom of God. He clearly teaches them about another kingdom. A kingdom defined by pain and suffering and torture and, yes, even death. is a place called hell. A real place with real causes and real effects. This is one of those passages in Scripture that we often say is, is, is hard to preach and hard to listen. Were you excited to come to church this morning and hear a sermon on hell and judgment and temptation and yet there's no way around it in the word of God a sermon on millstones on chopping off hands gouging out eyes these are really heartwarming topics 
Yet the Lord Jesus speaks of hell often. He is the one that speaks of hell more often than any other person that we're told of in Scripture. He speaks of judgment and righteousness often. Why? Because we must understand that hell is a real place. The wrath of God is a real thing. But you also ask the question, why do we need to know about hell? Why do we need to know about the wrath of God? Why does Jesus tell us that it would be better to throw, be thrown into the ocean with a millstone around our neck? Do you know what a millstone is? A millstone is usually in, in the first century and in ancient times, they, they had two really large stones, one stacked on top of the other one, and they would grind the grain. And it would take two, maybe even three ox or really strong donkeys to move this millstone around in a circle to grind the, the, the grain into a flour. And Jesus is saying, you know, you'd be better off with that millstone around your neck and dropped into the sea if you are tempted to cause someone else to sin or if you sin yourself. It would be better for you to be thrown in the ocean with a millstone around your neck than not to receive a child like the one Jesus is holding. In order that we would understand the depth of grace and the implications that grace has on our lives, in other words, Jesus talks about hell so that we would understand cause and effect. These are hard things in the passage to hear and to wrestle with. I I fully understand. And we must be mindful of what is before us, but we must also be fully cognizant of the stark reality of our sin. And not only the stark reality of our sin, but what that reality leads to. It seems that too often in our constant pursuit of comfort and safety and welfare, we lose sight of sin. We lose sight of the effect of sin. We lose track of the cause and effect. We lose sight of the consequences of our idolatry. So in order to understand as best as possible what Jesus is illustrating to the disciples, we must investigate a bit of the details. As I've said a number of times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark's not one to give us a bunch of details. He just gives us straight facts. So then when Mark does give us any kind of details, we need to take note. We need to take note of why is Mark telling us these things Why is Mark repeating similar words over and over again? Why is that? Why is this? Mark is giving us hints of what's happening. So when we come across this detail, we take notice. And we understand, and we try to understand what he is communicating to us. And so with that in mind, I want us to draw our thoughts back, and your eyes even, whether that's in your Bible or app or whatever you have open. I want to draw our attention to a word that is repeated not once, Not twice, but three times. The first time it's mentioned is in verse 43. The second time it's mentioned is in verse 45. And the third time it's mentioned is in verse 47. Do you see one word that is repeated three times? It's the word hell. The word for hell in the original is Gehenna, a place that many in the first century would be very aware, a real place, an actual place. 
But before I give us some details about this important aspect of of this word, I want us to have an idea of what hell is and what it's not. If I were to ask you the question, what is hell? Many, if not all, and I think in some part, part of my life, I would have answered it this way. Hell is the absence of God. God God's not there. So that the, Jesus experienced hell when he was abandoned from the Lord. And that's true, but it's not 100% in totality of what hell is. For God, we know, is omnipresent, so that means he can't remove himself from some aspect of any part of the universe. So if that's true, and, and, and abandonment from God is part of hell, then how do we wrestle with these two things? Tracking with me? So what is hell? Hell is not the complete and utter absence of God. For the person that is condemned, the last thing on earth or in heaven or hell that the condemned person wants is the righteousness of God for they're faced with the reality of what they've done and who they are in their condemnation so what is hell hell is the pervasive and ever-present wrath of God being poured out upon them so God is there in his wrath and in his righteousness and in his judgment and so the condemned is always face to face with the wrath of God always it's more than they can take. The word in the original language is Gehenna. A place, as I've said in the first century, that they would be very aware. is in an actual place just outside of Jerusalem in the Hanam Valley. For the word Gehenna is actually the Greek word for the translation of the Hebrew word for the valley of Hanam. Why is this important? Or why is this a powerful image that the people gathered around would be moved by? They would be moved by this word and this illustration that Jesus is employing. Remember, Jesus is still holding this child, right? He's holding the child and talking to these people about this place called Gehenna, this place called hell. Let us remember again who that child represents. Not only the child himself, but women and the weak and the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, the hungry, the oppressed. He says, when you receive one like this, you receive me. And when you receive me, you receive the Father. And if you don't, then the reciprocal of that is true also, right? If you don't receive ones like this, it would be better that you'd be thrown into the ocean with a millstone around your neck. So what is Gehenna? As Jesus embraces this child, the words of Jeremiah chapter 7 and Jeremiah chapter 32 come into full realization for us, and I am sure Jesus had these things in mind, and I'm sure that many gathered there knew these words Jeremiah 7, 30 to 31, if you want to turn there, feel free. It says these words, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built a high place of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hanam, right? Gehenna, right? To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to mind. 
And Jeremiah goes on a few chapters later in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 35, if you want to scroll down there. It says these words, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hanah, Gehenna, to offer up their sons and their daughters while Jesus holds this child. They offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Jesus is saying the same words to the disciples as he did to Jeremiah so many years ago. If you cause one like, one, ones like these to sin, it's better for you to be cast into Gehenna. What is Gehenna? It's a valley just outside of Jerusalem where even kings of Judah would set children ablaze. As Jesus holds this boy, he says, if you refuse these it would be better for you to be in Gehenna. It would be better for this, for you to be in this place, hell. And so this is real to those gathered around Jesus as he's teaching. For many scholars believe that it still existed. The smoke still came from the valley. brings up images of a burning putrid horror. If you have an opportunity to go with us to Isaiah 55 Ministries in the summertime, you may have an opportunity to witness a third world dump. You think our dumps are bad. This is a whole different kind of bad. The stench sears your nose. They light fires to burn their trash. And there's a haze of dirty, stinky smoke all around. And it's just there. And people know. And people live and work in this stench and in this mess. But as far as I can tell and as far as I know, They didn't do what the kings of Judah did. They're not doing what the kings of Judah did in the valley of Gehenna. This place called Gehenna is a different kind of stench. A different kind of awful. It's not a pleasant sight. And here, again, Jesus embraces a child. A child that for many years of history in that region would have potentially face the horrors of the Valley of Phnom for no other reason for the crime of being a child. In the kingdom of the Lord, the children are welcomed and embraced. In the kingdom of God, the marginalized are welcomed and embraced. In the kingdom of God, the oppressed are welcomed and embraced. They are not left to the faith of the valley, but they are embraced by the loving and tender mercy of the outstretched arms of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a really difficult thing and topic to wrestle with and to understand. It's humbling. It's challenging. It rakes at our souls. 
And it's challenging for us to consider what does that mean for us today. We don't live in the first century. And we don't live across the border in Mexico. We live in Arlington, Texas. And Jesus was speaking to a first century audience. But he's also speaking to us here and now. But what, it is, what is it that the disciples understood? Remember this journey, right? Jesus is coming back down from the northern kingdoms, the northern part of the region in this Gentile region where they've seen Jesus reach out to the Gentiles of all people. Remember Peter saying, you, you can't feed them. That, that's, they're not part of this, Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'm going to feed them. I'm going to heal them. I'm going to cast demons out of them. I'm going to embrace them. I'm going to heal the outcast and the marginalized. The words ring true for us as well. For if we refuse ones like this child, then our fate is that of the Valley of Hanam. If we refuse ones like these, we refuse Jesus. And in refusing Jesus, we don't receive the Father. And if we don't receive the Son, and we don't receive the Father, we have a millstone around our neck. We will not be welcomed into the kingdom of God if we do not receive ones like this because citizens of the kingdom of God operate on a different economy, operate with a different kind of generosity, a different kind of mercy. This is a new definition of grace and mercy that Jesus is explaining to them, living out before them. And he says, now this too is your mission. This is who you are as citizens and kingdoms of this kingdom of God. So in our world, children, by and large, are looked at as extremely important. They are loved and cared for and adored. So the illustration loses a bit of its impact on us this morning. So we must ask ourselves then, okay, what is it that Jesus is teaching us that we as citizens of the kingdom of God in 2021 must understand? Who is it that we are to receive? Who is it that that we are to, to cause not to sin? The little ones? Sure, absolutely. but the illustration still does apply. We are to receive the weak, the ones who can't fend for themselves. We are to receive the marginalized and the outcast, the poor, the hungry. This is not politics. It's not an agenda. This is not secular sympathizing. Friends, this is the word of God. Straight from the mouth of Jesus, receive the marginalized. Receive the hurting. Receive those who mourn. Receive the outcast. Receive the poor. Receive the hungry. So the burning question in our lives, or the big neon flashing sign is, who is that in our society? It is indeed the poor, the hungry, and the marginalized. But yes, again, not politics, not agendas, but the poor and marginalized in our community are the minority groups in our society, in our world, in our city. The African Americans, the Hispanics, the Asians. 
These are the people that we need to receive, for these are the people that Jesus reaches out to. And they, too, are created the image of God. The weak, the sad, the suffering. Friends, if we don't receive, and if we don't mourn with them, and if we aren't sorrowing with them, we don't know their stories. We don't weep with their story. If we don't receive them, we don't receive Jesus. And then if we cause one of these to sin, that's all that much worse. Cause our sin, our temptation to sin, affect death. I spent all week trying to figure out what is the best way, the softest way, the nicest way, the easiest way to say some of these things. I don't know any way around the topic other than to be blunt. I recognize that we live in a world that's hypersensitive, and I'm keenly aware of this hypersensitivity of the moment in time that we find ourselves. But Jesus is saying to us here in Mark chapter 9, it is our responsibility to receive those who are weak and marginalized, poor, oppressed, suffering, and sorrowful. This is who we are as citizens of the kingdom of God. And the cause and the effect is stark and it's real. If we don't, hell is in our future. Then Mark tells us more of what Jesus says in the moment of teaching. He continues to teach them what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. If the challenge wasn't great enough already, and and, and as blunt as Jesus was, and as blunt as I am, he turns the thoughts of the disciples, not, not to people over there, but to our own hearts, our own lives, our own everything, right? He turns our thoughts and our attention to our hands and our feet and our eyes. And he says, if your hands cause you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to go into heaven with one hand than to go into the valley of Gehenna. It's better for you to to chop off your feet than to go into the valley of Gehenna and be in the kingdom of God with no feet. It's better to have no eyes that cause you to sin than to go into Gehenna or to... Going to heaven is a better thing with no eyes. In other words, he wants us to consider everything that we do with our hands. Everywhere we go with our feet and everything we see. And determine if it's in line with the kingdom of God. He says that we need to consider each aspect of our lives and measure it against the kingdom of the Lord. If our hand causes us to sin, it's better to cut it off. Same thing with our feet and our eyes. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that we should literally go and cut off our hands and our feet and gouge out our eyes? I don't think so. He's using this as an illustration in the same way he's using the young boy as an illustration. He's using this illustration to compare and contrast the joy of the kingdom of God, of what that looks like compared to the suffering and the sorrow and the horror of hell. Bottom line, friends, hell is real. 
It's a real place with real horror. It is not to be softened. Sin is real with real horror, with real consequences. It is not to be softened. Our sin causes an effect. Our sin causes the misery of hell. It's not to be softened. As Christians under grace, we often limit the impact of our sin, don't we? We understand, and rightfully so, that that grace covers us. I'm good. But sin has real power. Sin has real impact. It has real effect. It has real implications in real life. It damages relationships. It damages marriages. It damages churches. It damages jobs. It damages parents and children. It damages how we treat one another or don't treat one another. So when we don't receive ones like this child whom Jesus is embracing, we sin. When we cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble, we sin. Listen again. There's no way for me to make this softer. Because Jesus hasn't made it soft. As I thought more and more about this difficult subject that Jesus is describing in this chapter, a question continued to come to my mind. Why does Jesus tell us about hell three times in such a short span of dialogue? It seems to me that he answers the question at the very end of Mark chapter 9. He says to have peace with one another to pursue holiness and righteousness in order that we would have peace with one another. And this just seems kind of out of left field. He just talks about judgment and righteousness, temptation and suffering and hell. And then he says, oh yeah, by the way, have peace with one another. What? What does he mean? He says, have peace just as salt preserves, so too we in our pursuit of loving and caring and, and receiving these people. We measure out peace. Cause and effect. Don't sin in order that peace would abound. Cause and effect. Don't sin in order that the marginalized and outcasts may find a home. Don't sin in order that we would have peace with one another. Loving the needs And embracing the suffering of the other person is of far more value than our hands, our feet, our eyes. Peace and unity among brothers and sisters is like the oil that runs down the beard of Aaron. It's beautiful. It's wonderful and precious. But how, right, how is that possible? How can we love that way? How can we treat and receive people that are hard, that are makes us uncomfortable, that we're not quite sure what to do? It's awkward. Because peace is already accomplished. In Jeremiah, we're told of this heinous sacrifice of children 
in a valley of death. A horrific scene of gruesome violence played itself out on a daily basis with the smoke continually rising and the stench continually wafting in the air. But then, in a scene just as horrific and gruesome, just as the kings of Judah sacrificed their children, the father of the universe, in a horrific and gruesome scene, sacrificed his son on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus went into the valley of the shadow of death. And he slay the enemy. Because on the cross, Jesus not only was abandoned by the Lord, but he drank the cup of wrath. He drank the cup of wrath that was intended to be poured out on our heads. And he slayed that enemy. And he took the sacrifice for one purpose. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, And bear with me here as I read just a few verses from Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that would be us, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ thereby killing the hostility and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and priest to those who peace to those who were near for through him we have both access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Receive one of these weak and marginalized and outcast because you were once weak and marginalized and outcast and Jesus died for you and gave you peace. cause and effect Jesus sought us and pursued us while we were on the outside not only while we were on the outside but in a few verses earlier and also in Romans Paul tells us that we weren't just weak we weren't just marginalized but we were dead And Jesus pursued us in our death and breathed life into us. And he said, I received you at that point. And you now are citizens of this kingdom. Receive others in the same way. Because he first loved us. We now love cause and effect. A kingdom built on the cornerstone of Christ. Christ. 
the one who is peace, who has made us both one and broke down the dividing wall in himself. Friends, take heart. Take heart in the grace and mercy of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For he is our only hope in all of life. He is the one that removes Gehenna from our future. And it's only accomplished by grace through faith. He is the cornerstone. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise that you are a God who pursues us. We give you thanks that you are a God who loves us despite of our sin, because of our sin. Hold us close. Hold us fast in your grace. Lord, for we need your grace this day. Give us strength to receive those that you would have us receive because you first received us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.